Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it. That you may fear the Lord your God, you and your sons and your sons' sons, by keeping all, this, all of His statutes and His commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I commanded you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word. Let us pray. Father, we thank You so much for who You are. We thank You for the opportunity that You've given us to, to assemble and to, to, to remove the cares, to, to just flush them off that we might focus wholly and solely upon You. We pray that You would enter into this space, speak to our hearts, conform us, into the image of your Son, dear Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. Now, now I know exactly what they mean when they say it takes a village to raise a child. That old African proverb properly captures the role that community must play in areas of child development. I, I am equipped to teach my children many things. There are, however, many things that I cannot teach my children. I must rely on others to give them foundations in areas where my own abilities have either atrophied or just never existed. I've had to look at my children many a time when they've had a math problem in hand and admit, I can't help you with that problem because I don't even understand what the problem is. Sorry, go ask your mom. She'll be able to guide them through the sticky points of the problem most of the time, but every now and again, even, he, even she, as good as she is with math, will, will say, I don't know how to do that. Now, I suppose I have a choice when I'm confronted with my ignorance or mental atrophy, however you want to prefer, when, when that's highlighted. I have a choice. I could try to dust off my algebraic neurons and study between taskers during the week in hopes that I could provide them with some guidance. Or I could just look at my kid and admit, I don't know. I think there's a gospel goodness that comes from hearing a loved one or an admired parent or grandparent admitting that they have a weakness. In the world of education, mine is math, chemistry, and anything that demands much more than a plus, a minus, or a divide. Now, I know that there was some dude named Pythagoras, and I know that he had a theorem. But you better go ask Google or your teacher what it was, because if you ask me, you're just going to get crickets and a blank stare. That's just, that's just the reality. The book of Deuteronomy begins with Israel in the wilderness. 
right on the rim of the Jordan Valley near modern-day Madaba. In the country of Jordan, of course. And incidentally, the next time you're in Madaba, if you ever do get over there, it's an amazing place to go. Uh, the, you need to stop at a restaurant called Bawabit Madaba. It means the gates of Madaba in Arabic. Amazing lamb. I, order the mixed grill. It's the best lamb you'll ever get in Jordan. I, 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 when I ended my deployment to Jordan, I, I'd been to that restaurant nearly 30 times. And so I, I'd gotten to know the, the chef a little bit. So I walked back there and I said, hey, could you tell me your secret? Because I love good lamb. I was like, could you tell me your secret? How do you make it so good? They said, oh, yeah, yeah, there's no secrets. It's really simple. Olive oil, salt, and pepper. And I'm telling you, I came back to the States, and I have tried olive oil, salt, and pepper on lamb, and they have never gotten it anywhere close. I don't know what the secret is, but anyway, try it. Bawa with Madaba next time you get to Jordan. But when Moses was there, the only lamb they had was what was on the hoof. A few million people camped up there, would strain any land. So it's really no wonder that Moab and Edom were uncomfortable and more than reluctant to let this group of people pass through their territory onto the land. Now, you know what your almost there, wherever there is, attitude is after a long journey? And I'm not just talking to the kids here. I'm talking to you adults. You know what your, your almost there attitude is? Like, like eager anticipation is long gone. Somewhere in the rearview mirror. Now it's just restless angst. It's time to get there. And you know what happens, right? Tempers can flare. There's almost always, on the top of Nebo, near Madaba, there's almost always a nice breeze coming up from the Jordan River Valley. But I'm telling you, the people don't feel that cool refreshment. It's really quite an amazing, beautiful view. Anybody been there? Anybody been to Nebo in Jordan? It's, it, it is an incredible view. Last time I had two people in the, more, in the earlier service. But if, if, it is an amazing view when you're standing up on Nebo and you're looking over as Moses did onto the promised land. Absolutely gorgeous. But Israel doesn't see it. Instead, there's a flaming chorus amongst the people of, are we there yet? And it's rising from the proverbial back seat. Nobody's happy. Forty years prior, and I think we forget that sometimes. When we're reading the Scripture, when we're studying the Word, we forget about the time that passes between the narratives. Forty years prior, Moses ascended a different mountain, the mountain of God. Now Moses is about to head to this other mountain, Mount Nebo, for his last mountaintop encounter with God. But this was one from which he would not return. He knew that he was about to die. If you, call, if you recall, Moses had fallen under God's discipline. A discipline which cost him the privilege of entering the promised land. You see, Moses had an anger problem. What did he do when he saw the children of Israel worshiping a cow as the one true God, the Lord, who brought them up out of Israel? Do you remember what he did? He'd just gotten the law of God on tablets, written by the finger of God, written on tablets of stone. He walks down, he sees this going on, and he smashes them to bits. Yeah, he had a temper. But sometimes I think, who could blame him? I mean, he was, for the most part, the picture of steadied faithfulness. Yet his people in his own immediate family, in, in, in addition were the poster children of rebellion 
in unfaithfulness. Now, my family will help me out. They'll, they'll remind me after the service if I'm not correct in this. But, but I, I, unless I completely lack self-awareness, which is possible, after all, we do kind of live in our own skulls, I think that I'm pretty steady state as a general rule. Like when bad things happen, I'm pretty well able in the moment to evaluate the situation and plot a course without losing my cool. That is, until I can't find something that I want or I need. Listen, if I can't find my keys in my wallet when it's time to go, it is everybody else's fault but my own. It's the kid's fault. It's my wife's fault. It's the dog's fault. By the way, I don't even have a dog, but it's the dog's fault. I can't find my keys or my wallet, and I'm ticked off of the world, so I smash God's table of stone in my pursuit of my keys, and I'm not satisfied with any other solution than finding them. doesn't matter that we have another key. Then I find my wallet, my keys are invariably inside of my coat pocket, and I sheepishly apologize to my family as they're picking up the remnants of the stone tablets that I've left all over the house. Yeah, I, I, can, I can relate all too well with Moses. But I mean, listen to the complaints that Moses had to deal with. Exodus chapter 15 and verse number 22. Moses, the water is bitter. Exodus chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. I'm going to summarize a little bit. Moses, we're hungry. Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 4. We're thirsty. Numbers chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. You're a bad leader. Numbers chapter 14, verses 1 through 10. We can't beat those big giants in battle. Why did you bring us here to die? Numbers chapter 14, a little bit later on. You're a bad leader. We want a new one. Numbers chapter 16. You're a bad leader. We want a new one. Numbers chapter 16 again. You're a bad leader. We want a new one. Numbers chapter 20. You're right. Right there. Numbers chapter 20. This is the one that costs him. We're thirsty. Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 5. You're a bad leader. That's the one that caused the snakes to show up. Totally different sermon. But that Numbers 20 complaint, why did that cost him? Let's read it. It's almost like a bad sitcom rerun. We know that we have seen this before and we don't know why we're being compelled to watch it again, but here we go. Numbers chapter 20, verse number 2, Now there was no water for the congregation. And they assembled together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into the wilderness so that we should die here, both we and our cattle? Why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vine or pomegranates. and There's no water to drink. Verse 6, Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appealed to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take the staff, that staff that serves him so well, that symbol of divine power, 
Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron and your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. Verse number 9, And and Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, (laughs) always strikes me as funny, Here now, you rebels! That temper again. Shall we bring water for you out of the rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank in their livestock. Verse number 12, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy, sanctified, separate, in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. I think Moses in this moment is seeing stars. I mean, he is furious at the people. I don't think he's thinking all that clearly. Listen, it's one thing to be angry. It's another thing to allow one's anger to drive actions that are contrary to God's clearly revealed will. God said to Moses, speak to the rock. No work to be done. No rock to break. No anger to satiate. Moses, just look at the rock and say, water, come forth. Instead, he grabs that staff, that symbol of his authority and power and might and God's ability to show up at the most opportune times like he had it before Pharaoh. He takes that staff and swings it twice like a sledgehammer, perhaps thinking, for good measure, if there is any rock in this thing, I might be able to get it out. But Moses, it's not for you to get out. This is the work of God. Just speak, just obey. But the water still flows in spite of Moses' choice. But this act of defiance, clouded as it may have been by his anger in the moment and the heavy fog that was about him, cost Moses the opportunity to enter into the promised land. So he would have to content himself with the view from Nebo. Like I said before, what a view. In the many times that I visited, a few times only, because there's just a persistent haze now that just lays over that Jordan River Valley, but a few times you could, you could even see the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem if you look straight across. And if you look a little bit to the south, you can see the city of Hebron. If you look to the north, you can see the very south end of the, the Sea of Galilee. It is a magnificent view. The entire book of Deuteronomy sits between the time of Moses' disobedience and Moses' death at Nebo. You see, he's not going in. He'll see it, and that's it. And he knows it. But I'm telling you, this man Moses, he loved his people. Ten times, Ten times, ten times he stood between God and Israel. He stood in the gap between God's anger and the rebellion of the Israelites. And one of those times, God looked at Moses and said, I'll just finish them all off right now, and I'll reset the promise that I gave to Abraham through you and your offspring. And Moses begged God in that moment, to relent, to grant mercy and pardon to His people. 
And God granted mercy and pardon. But now Moses is dispossessed from the land. He'll soon hand the reins of leadership of the people of Israel over to his understudy, Joshua. But before that, he dusts off his memory. And he assembles the next generation for the sermon of all sermons. The word Deuteronomy means second law. It's not a new law. It's the same one that he'd received 40 years prior on Mount Sinai with some addendums and some clarifications for what they were about to experience. Completely different life for them now. No longer desert wanderers. Now they would be a settled people in a new land. The elders of the people were children. Think about it again. The span of time. The elders were now children when they had crossed the Red Sea. They were children at Mount Sinai. And listen, we all know that it does not take long for a people to forget seismic events and their impacts on a culture. I don't think I ever saw this more clearly expressed and illustrated than in a conversation that I had with an English-speaking Japanese youth when I expressed my concern with our plans to visit Peace Memorial Park in Hiroshima when I was assigned in Japan. My angst about the visit was compounded a bit because before my assignment to Japan, I was a part of the 509th Bomb Wing, whose patch you see right here. The patch's focal point is two mushroom clouds. Just months prior to my assignment at Misawa, Japan, I had joined the pilots of the 509th Bomb Wing in an atomic luau, an annual traditional celebration at the Bomb Wing that celebrates the, the role that the Bomb Wing played in ending the war in Japan by creating those two mushroom clouds that brought unimaginable devastation to men, women, and children in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. After expressing my discomfort with visiting the site of the bombing, I had to, by the way, get a whole brand new wardrobe. Like, all of my stuff had this mushroom cloud on it. The Japanese friend of ours said, oh, don't worry about it, it's just history. As an aside, think about this. I mean, just from the, it's just wild for me to think about it, but all of our young men in the Air Force, young men and women who are joining today, who are coming in for the last couple of years, really have no memory of September 11th. They weren't even born. They can't remember the planes crashing into two Twin Towers on September 11th. It's, it's just history. It's just history. Goodness, our institutional and personal memories even are, are just lousy. I mean, is Pearl Harbor just... Just history? Does it still live in infamy? Does our young generation even know what infamy means? What do the, the letters FDR stand for? Is Stalin just something that my old car does in the intersection? For 40 years in a history book is a drop of water in an ocean. 40 years of a, a person's life is an eternity. 30 years have forgotten, have caused me to forget the mechanics of dividing fractions. How much more am I likely to forget how I might have felt as a 10 year old 
when I saw my parents disagree and fire a sarcastic barb meant to hurt. And how easy it was when I was a child to say, I'll never repeat that mistake. Thirty years later, have my kids ever witnessed the same? So, so Moses gathers the people together and delivers what we now know as the book of Deuteronomy, the law over again, the law for the second generation, written to and for them who only had the slightest memory and idea of what cruel life their parents had endured in the land of Egypt under the taskmaster's whip. More brick, more brick, more brick. Let my people go, said a young Moses as he stood in front of Pharaoh with his rod. Let my people remember, was the cry of Moses as an elderly man with one foot in the grave. Don't forget, never forget, it's not just history. If you'd like, you can read the book of Deuteronomy as the last will and testament of Moses, and you won't be far off from the mark. And the central point of his will is found towards the beginning in chapter 6, the verses we read at the beginning of the sermon. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all of His statutes and all of His commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk, and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be in your heart and you shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hands and they shall be as a front between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give you with great and good cities that you did not build and houses full of all good things that you did not fill and cisterns that you did not dig and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve and by His name you shall swear. In verse number 20, when your son asks you in time to come, what's the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us up out of Egypt with a mighty hand. The Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there 
that he might bring us in to give us the land that he swore to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes and to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he commanded us. Generations later, the psalmist wrote, Psalm 145, verse number four, one generation shall commend your work to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Listen, folk, if we don't, it is just history. Many generations after Moses, Paul the Apostle, writing to his protege Timothy, said, I am reminded of your sincere faith. A faith that first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. 2 Timothy 1 verse 5. Listen, I am sure that all of us, each one of us, can identify our Paul, our Eunice, our Lois, someone or maybe someone who, who, who impacted, who invested in your spiritual life. They sat down and gave you a Deuteronomy, a second telling of the law that made the person of Christ real to you. Maybe it was gradual. Maybe it was sudden. But one day, you stopped viewing God as the God of your parents or the God of your friends or the God of your co-workers or your preacher or whoever introduced you to Christ, and He became your God. The Pearl Harbor, the Hiroshima, the 9-11 of your soul struck with such vigor that you became aware of just how naked and defenseless you were and you cried to the God of justice to become your God of mercy. So you know who your Paul or Eunice or Lois is. Good for you. Who is your Timothy? Parents and grandparents, this one's easy for you. You know exactly who they are. It's not the village's responsibility to live the gospel to your offspring. It's yours. Your faith should be ubiquitous. It should be everywhere. It should be on your gate, on your door, on your walls. Look at the text again, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. What did we miss there? What does that pretty much encompass? All the time. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Listen, Hobby Lobby and Michaels have made it way too easy, maybe too, too easy, to put Scripture on your walls. Do it, please! But notice the progression. It begins with the passionate pursuit of God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. The outflow of your passionate pursuit of God will be found in your interactions with your children and your grandchildren throughout the day. 
text says, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you must both take the opportunities that arrive and make opportunities to pass along your faith to the next generation. Then comes the posting of the text of Scripture on the hand, in front of the eyes, and on your walls. You get the point. Get in the Word and live the Word and teach the next generation. And this is not talking about a once-a-week opportunity of taking somebody to somebody else and letting them talk to them about God. This is talking about life. We don't see this responsibility to anyone. We can welcome the input of others. We can accept the aid of those who are more knowledgeable about the things of God. And you better be willing to admit that you don't know some things. After all, much of what we would like to know about God is simply unknowable. We know what He wills us to know. And it's revealed to us in His holy inspired Word. And you may not know all that you wish to know about God's Word. But that does not excuse you one bit from the role that you should be playing in passing the faith from one generation to the next. They may or may not listen. That's up to them. But we are responsible for the story that we tell about our faith journey. It's the stories, after all, that speak most clearly. All you have to do is read the preaching of Jesus. What did he do? He told stories. Listen, the experience in this room is truly staggering. Most of the adults in this room, I would think all, most all, can tell exactly where they were and what they were doing when 9-11 happened. And we can express exactly what it meant to us. Perhaps some in here could, could even tell us about what they were doing what they were feeling on December 7, 1941. All of us, I trust, can share how God used seismic events in our lives to draw us along on our faith journey. What a shame, dare I even say sin, that those of us with gray and bald heads refuse to speak to the next generation of what we know. One generation, the psalmist said, commends your works to another. It's true, of course, unless they don't. Let us pray. Father, you are good. You are God. We thank you for the gift that you have given us, the opportunity to tell our story to the next generation, the opportunity to shine as your light to those around us that others may see your good work and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to be faithful in that call. And it's in Jesus' most precious name we pray these things. Amen.